Hello. Welcome again to Noblesville First. I'm Matt Hantelman, one of the pastors here at Noblesville First, and I'm glad you've joined us today, whether here in person or online. As we continue our series on encounters with Jesus, I'd like to spend some time today on one of the occurrences that didn't happen immediately after Christ rose. Our story today is about the conversion of Paul on the road to Damascus. We can learn a lot from his conversion story and what it can mean for us, and we can learn a lot from Paul himself, who is the author of many of our New Testament letters. But one thing really stuck out to me while I was reading about Paul and who he was and his story. Before his conversion, Paul believed he was fully devout. Paul was a Pharisee, and he tells us as much in his letter to the Philippians. In Philippians chapter 3, he says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. I am from the people of Israel in the tribe of Benjamin. I am a Hebrew of the Hebrews. With respect to observing the law, I'm a Pharisee. And with respect to devotion to the faith, I harassed the church. This means he would have been a follower and studier of the law as well as the oral teachings of the faith. In fact, the Encyclopedia Britannica, for those of you who are old enough to remember what that is, says this about the Pharisees. The Pharisees asserted that God could and should be worshipped even away from the temple and outside of Jerusalem. To the Pharisees, worship consisted not in bloody sacrifices, the practice of the temple priests, but in prayer and in the study of God's law. There's even a suggestion that the synagogue, a gathering place of learning about the scriptures, was instituted by the Pharisees as a secondary place of worship to the temple. Now, this doesn't sound much like the enemies of Jesus that I grew up hearing about, and much more like the direction Jesus was trying to get people to go. Paul was part of this sect, and even in the midst of all of his study and prayer and recognizing that God was not simply contained in a temple, Paul missed the boat. He still persecuted and participated in the killing of Christians. Somehow, in the midst of study and prayer and belief, Paul had missed an essential piece of God's view of the world. Jesus. I think some might make the argument that Paul was operating in the old way and missed a change that happened. But Paul wasn't the victim of religion changing. It was always supposed to be different, and he missed it. In the same way that Paul believed that sacrifice wasn't the only way to worship God, even though that was the prevailing idea of the day, Jesus also taught repeatedly, you've heard it said, but I tell you. But those weren't new ideas that God had. God wasn't sitting up in heaven and one day had a new thought and said, you know what, I'll send Jesus down to share the change that I've made. No, that's how it was meant to be all along, and they had missed it, just like Paul had missed it, just like we sometimes miss it. When we look back over the major events happening in Christianity through the centuries, rarely, if ever, do we see a movement back to the way it was. 
Christianity has been a forward-looking movement since its inception. And those that continued to drive it forward, the St. Augustines of the world, Martin Luther, William Wilberforce, even Paul of Tarsus, never intended the motion that they began to be the end. When Martin Luther began the Protestant Reformation, he wasn't looking for people to simply believe what he thought instead of what the Catholics of the day believed. He wanted people to continue the forward movement that he began. When Jesus taught of restoring sight to the blind and loosening the chains of oppression, he wasn't suggesting that once he was gone, that was the end of it, but that we should pick up our crosses and die to ourselves to continue moving forward. This forward movement, though, is still movement towards what God has intended all along. We've allowed our humanness to get in the way of how God wants us to live. The Bible has examples of this throughout from the very beginning if eating the fruit in the garden to the Israelites building a golden calf in the desert to Jonah being upset when God's redemption came to people he didn't want it to to Peter denying Jesus three times. The list goes on. God has a plan that humanity has yet to fully follow. And we are consistently moving forward to make more of God's plan a reality. Christian forward movement put the Bible into a language we could all read. It abolished slavery. It began the movement towards gender equality and now is fighting to continue that forward movement when it comes to accepting different sexual identities. At every step, during every forward movement, there were those on the side of keeping things the same, saying that we shouldn't change, we shouldn't move forward, saying that change is wrong and it's not who God is nor who we should be. It's Paul persecuting and killing Christians. It's slave owners who have every biblical argument they need to show that they should be allowed to own people. It's men slamming their Bibles and demanding that women know their place. And it's us now claiming that we understand love enough to decide who it's allowed to be between. Paul's encounter with Christ teaches us that even the most devout follower can be entirely wrong. And that a life of simply studying scriptures and trying to follow the laws of God to the best of our ability can literally create a person that misses the most important thing. Jesus and his radical life-giving love. Paul believed he was devout. He knew the Bible backwards and forwards of his time. And without encountering Jesus, he felt his duty from the scripture was to persecute and kill Christians. After encountering Jesus, his mission changed completely and became making sure that as many people knew the love of Christ and how it changed him as possible. And I am Paul. I studied scriptures and taught them for years in ways that called for persecution instead of love. I, I built 
higher walls to keep Christians safe from sin rather than building a longer table to make sure everyone was included. I focused more on individual sin than perfect and complete redemption. I am Paul. And far too late, as I'm sure Paul would agree, I encountered Jesus and found the endless redemptive love that accepted not only me, but everyone, including those I had discouraged. If you've ever thought that God would refuse a seat at the table to someone for who they are or who they love or what they've done, I hope that Paul's message is one that encourages you to seek out an encounter with the living Christ. And I hope that my story can encourage you to seek out that encounter again and again and again, to continue to be covered in Christ's love and redemptive power. Amen. Last week... Pastor Jill shared about Mary Magdalene and how she recognized Jesus when Jesus called out her name. We talked about the 153 fish that tells us when we see God's abundance, we know that Jesus' presence is there. Next week, I'm going to take a careful look at the appearance of Jesus to the 500 people at once and what that means to us. Today, I want to look at the rendezvous that Jesus had in Galilee with those disciples after he had already appeared to them in the upper room. So I'm curious what comes to mind when you hear this scripture. It's one of the most quoted passages in all of the Bible. We call it the Great Commission. Most people use the scripture to inspire and motivate people towards evangelistic efforts. And I'm sure that's one of your favorite words, right? Be evangelist. Be evangelistic. What do you think of when you hear that word? I'm afraid many associate that word with some negative experiences. Sometimes it comes across as too pushy or invasive. I remember one of my most evangelistic efforts, initiatives, uh, if you use that traditional understanding of it, occurred many years ago when I was down in New Albany. We decided to start a new service, and this was... Uh, far enough ago that it was still okay to knock on doors. You know, now I don't think we enjoy that too much. And we decided to make up some brochures that describe what this new service would look like. And so we, I got, and and let me tell you, this wasn't an easy thing for me. I'm an introvert. Knocking on doors is not easy to do, but I'd get a couple people to go with me. And we'd knock on doors and just plan to stay on the porch we quickly give a little two-minute two speech about what we had in mind with this service and ask if it's okay to leave a brochure. If they didn't answer the door, then we just stuck the brochure in the door somehow so that they would see it at a later time. I think we handed out about 500 brochures. Well, we started out that service, and it had a great turnout the first Sunday, although probably the majority of people showed up as the people from the first service that just wanted to see what we're doing. But when it all shook down after a few weeks, we had about 70 to 80 new people that had started coming. Eventually, that service grew to about 120 people. So we're very pleased. That was pretty good for that neighborhood church there in New Albany. But to our knowledge, we don't think anybody came or at least stuck because of those knocking on doors, flawed efforts. So I I decided from then on I'm never doing that again. That's probably a good thing because I'd say today it's one of the least... Uh, effective things you can do. 
But the interesting thing was, a couple years after that service had started, we had a new family come, and as I would often do, I'd, if they kept coming, then I'd give a phone call and see if it's okay to drop by and get to know them a little better. And so I went to their home, and one of the questions I asked him was, what caused you to bring your family to, that, to our service? And so he said, just a minute. And he got up out of the living room, went to his office at his home, and he brought back one of those brochures we had handed out two years before. Two years before. And he said something about that brochure spoke to me. And we have been wanting to come, but with two little kids, we just hadn't quite got there, and we finally got around to it. Now, I consider that a work of the Holy Spirit. And it tells us a couple things. It makes us think about how we just never know what we do will somehow be used by God to bring people in the family of God. I think it also causes us to think about the way that we bring the message of Christ to other people. I share this story because I think too often this Great Commission scripture has been abused. It's often uh, shared in a way that abuses people and sometimes entire cultures. Instead of sharing the good news with the humble spirit of Jesus Christ. Now there's a couple insights that I can share with you today about this resurrection appearance I think helps us capture the right spirit we should have in sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. And the first one is found in Matthew 28, 16 to 17. It says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus told them to go, and when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. They worshipped him, but some doubted. Now keep in mind, these were the disciples who had already seen him in the upper room. They were instructed by him there, to rendezvous up in Galilee, and yet they doubted. Now, there's a little bit of confusion about the translation of this verse. You're going to find that just like our translation today, most translations will say they worshipped him, but some doubted, kind of suggesting like there were some who were all in, and then there's others who maybe had their doubts and weren't quite sure. The New American Bible, though, may have translated this most accurately, when it translates, when they saw him, they worshipped, but they doubted. Do you hear the difference? It's an important distinction. I think it's important, and it probably helps us relate to this resurrection appearance to ourselves because it communicates that faith and doubt can coexist at the same time. I mean, how many times are you 100% sure about anything? Absolute certainty is not required to be a follower of Jesus. Faith is moving forward and taking action in spite of our uncertainty. I believe Matthew made sure to communicate this little detail. I mean, why would you throw that in there? I think he did so because he knew that his readers, who were reading his gospel some 50 to 60 years after Jesus walked this earth, are now entering that stage in the movement of the church where they're entering the second generation of believers. The early growth of the church mushroomed because they had those disciples going around. They had eyewitness accounts of Jesus. They told those stories firsthand. But now those stories are having to be handed on to a new generation of people. And so there are people that doubt, who, who maybe are not quite sure. And he shares this little detail to remind us that's okay. The important thing 
The key to faith is moving forward in spite of those doubts. Well, I think the implication for us with this little detail is that the attitude that we should have in sharing the witness of our faith, there should always be a humbleness to our witness. So we don't come across arrogantly as if we have all the answers. I don't know about you, but these days when someone tries to tell me something with absolute certainty, I tend to question their authenticity. Our world's too complicated for simple answers that are supposed to work for everyone in every situation. I much prefer someone who comes to me and says instead, I have found this helpful to my life. I think that approach is so much easier to receive instead of feeling someone is pushing an agenda upon you. And the second interesting insight I think we find in this passage is also in that 16th verse. It says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus told them to go. Now, if you're a student of the Bible, especially if those of you that have taken disciple Bible study, one thing you'll know when you read the book of Matthew is that it is, it's a book that has no accidents. The writer structures his book most carefully. I think it's one of the most structured ancient writings you'll find. He's writing clearly to a Jewish Christian audience, trying to convince them that Jesus is the Messiah that they had been waiting for. You'll notice that the book is structured with five sections to remind them of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Hebrew Bible. So when the writer says the resurrection appearance happened on a mountain where Jesus told them to go, this isn't some generic geographical reference. He's trying to plant a seed that communicates to us what it means when Jesus says to go make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. For you students of the Bible, what body of teaching also happened on a mountain? Any quick guesses? The Sermon on the Mount, which happens to be one of those five sections of Matthew, chapters 5 through 7, carefully explained. Matthew seems to be suggesting that this is what we need to recall. This is what it means to teach people to baptize and obey everything that he, Lord. And, and notice that there's no name given to this mountain. There's no name given to the Sermon on the Mount either. But it doesn't really matter because Matthew just wants to plant the seed. It's significant when we think about what it means to make disciples. We talk about this Great Commission. Because so often when people read the Great Commission, they make it sound like this triumphal, like a cry of a military leader who gives to his soldiers that, that pitch or, or it's, it's like the, the speech given by a sales manager to his regional sales representatives. Go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It sounds like a command to go and conquer. And in these days, that kind of approach can make a lot of us uncomfortable. It smacks colonialism of attempting to control others or simply trying to make people like us. These disciples who are meeting the risen Lord on that mountain are not an army ordered to make all nations subject, nor are they franchise owners sent out to increase market share for the brand. I think this passage is poorly translated most of the time, and people often miss the nuances that are there. These are disciples who have doubts still, 
trying to figure out what it means to worship a crucified Lord. These disciples are not trained soldiers. If anything, they're best described as numbskulls, cowards, and squabblers that somehow God has called out to gather the broken people of the world. If this reference to the mountain is a subtle reminder of the Sermon on the Mount, then that means what we need to do to invite people to be a part of our faith community is remind them that blessed are the peacemakers. We're called to be salt of the earth. We're called to go and reconcile with anybody who has something against us. We're called to turn the other cheek, to go the extra mile, to love not just our neighbors but our enemies. We're warned not to be hypocrites and not to be showy in our religion, but to pray behind closed doors. Our goal is not to prosper, but to quit worrying about tomorrow. And most importantly, Jesus told us not to judge others, to worry about the log in our own eyes before we worry about the speck in someone else's. That's what's contained in the Sermon on the Mount. So making disciples and teaching others to obey Jesus is not about conquering, manipulating, or selling something. It's about inviting others into a life that we are all trying to figure out. No different than those disciples who met Jesus on a mountain in Galilee still experiencing doubt. We worship a Lord that we don't fully grasp. We're on a journey seeking to make this world as God intended it. And because of that, it is worth sharing. So being a resurrection people doesn't mean we've got to go around knocking on doors. But it does mean we've got a purpose worth sharing. So may God help each of us to find a way to invite others with this humble attitude to join that spiritual journey that really has the power to change the world one person at a time. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your spirit. Help us to capture what it means to share the good news with people in this world in this time. Not as people full of answers and arrogant, but as people who humbly have taken on the journey to follow you in all the ways that you've taught us. This is our prayer through Christ who is our Lord. Amen.